the stage and unveiled the very thing, that blessed and cursed device known as the iPhone. Historians have said that in 2007, the year 2007, will go down as one of the most influential years in human history. It was a major inflection point, like on kind of the same par as when the printing press was made in 1440. 2007 was also the year that Facebook became open to anyone with an email address. Oof. Transforming from some college, high school kind of thing to a worldwide phenomenon. It was the year um, that a microblogging website called Twitter became its own platform. And there was a list of other breakthroughs, like the release of the App Store and so many other things. Right around 2007, the official start date of the digital age. And the world has radically changed. Odds are most of you in this room, that is all you have ever known, is the digital age. There was this concept in the 1990s, it's been made extinct now, but it goes by the name of boredom. Doesn't exist anymore, but boredom defined is standing in line at a grocery store with nothing to do. Boredom is sitting in a car and just staring out the window. Some of you are like, that's torture. My mom had a babysitting business when I was growing up. After school, um, we would eat our snack of champions, bagel bites. And then we would just like stare at each other. What do we do now? (laughs) Well, I guess we'll play hide and seek again, which was largely just everybody that was hiding going to one corner of the house and the seeker running. And one person was looking that way, one person was looking that way. And y'all, this went on for hours just a mob of people running away from the seeker. That was, that was all we did. Now we can't imagine a life apart from the iPhone. What did that even mean? And listen, the digital age is cool. I can order Chipotle from wherever. I was able to, I was in Madagascar a few years ago, I was able to FaceTime my dad for his birthday. I mean, there are some cool things that technology, the digital age has done, but I do think we rarely talk about the cons. There's a lot of them, but one of them being that on our attention spans. There was a study in 2017, so again, this was six years ago, but three years prior to 2017, our attention span went from 12 and a half seconds to eight seconds, which 12 and a half seconds isn't that great, That means I lost you probably just at the beginning of this illustration. But now we are at what economists call an attention economy. Thousands of apps are trying to distract you 24-7. We are what uh, Microsoft researcher Linda Stone calls in in a continual partial attention. Tristan Harris, he was a former product philosopher for Google and Silicon Valley Insider. He left the whole industry, started his own nonprofit for the sole purpose of arguing for Hippocratic Oath for software designers. The reason why that, he, was, he, he like saw behind the curtain, he saw that everything is designed and intentionally engineered by some 20-something in San Francisco for distraction 
in addiction because that's where the money is. The only time that we can really be alone anymore is in the shower. But not really because Apple Watch Ultra is waterproof. So we can't even be alone anymore. Why does this matter? Because this is robbing us of our ability to be fully present with people, with ourselves, with God. It reminds me of when Jesus said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Yes, that is an accumulation of stuff, but I think in a digital age, having access to everything all at once, all the time, everywhere, we are at risk losing our souls. Y'all, what if the greatest threat to Christian faith today is not secularism, but distraction? One theologian put it this way, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. We live in an era where it is possible to go your entire life and never be alone. And even when we are alone, we're on our phone or the internet or the entertainment queue. Cal Newport in his book, Digital Minimalism, writes, it is now possible to completely banish solitude from your life. The moment that most of us are ever alone, even in our room or in the car, what do we do? We reach for the other appendage that is our device. We check our texts, we open social media, we read the news, we play music, we put on a podcast. We are just tethered to a world of noise. And the threat of all this noise and distraction is not even just on our minds or our bodies, it is our very souls. How many times have we missed that God wanted to speak to us, to shape us, but we were distracted? Is there a practice from the way of Jesus that could position you and me to hear his voice in all of the noise of the modern world? Yes, it is the practice of solitude. And if this sounds like torture, it's okay. Start where you are. But what I wanna do just over the next several weeks, so I'm gonna preach then Bobby and Doug are gonna come up and then I'll finish up. We're gonna go over the next four weeks and just look at the life and rhythms of Jesus and see that this is not just some like Buddhist monk thing or as our culture has popularized mindfulness. No, this is deeply rooted in the life of Jesus. Let's start in Matthew 3, 13. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, no, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, well, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and aligning or alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son who, I'm, who I love. With him, I am well pleased. So we're like, whoa, this is a huge moment here. 
This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it makes sense for us, like, logically to say, I can't see, like, I can't wait to see what Jesus does next. Like, the heavens are split. He is empowered by the Spirit. And then chapter 4, verse 1, he was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. We're just like, what? Jesus gets anointed. Crazy stuff happens. Like, this feels like he should go take over the world now right? Bring down the hammer of justice and righteousness. Let's go do ministry. Nope. He goes alone out in a desert. And not only that, he was led by the Spirit out into the desert by himself, 40 days alone. First things first, Jesus goes straight to the wilderness, not to preach to thousands, but to be alone in a quiet place. The word for wilderness in the English translation is of the Greek word, the aremos. Can you say that? Very good. The aremos, it can also be translated the desert, the deserted place, the desolate place, the lonely place, the solitary place, or I like this one, the quiet place. I grew up Baptist, so it's like quiet time, you know? There's stories in all four Gospels about Jesus' relationship with the Aramos. But this one, this, this first passage that I'm bringing you to, it creates a frame of reference around the other one. So let's read it again. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I'm not going to break down this passage that much. Uh, Doug is going to do that in a couple weeks. But have you ever read that passage and you're like, Why did the Spirit do that? Well, if you know the story of the Bible, we know Jesus has to go toe-to-toe with the devil. Genesis 3.15, I will send a rescuer who will crush the head of the serpent. But why in the desert? Why there? Why in solitude and also having fasted for 40 days? This only makes sense if we have this story backwards. I, I used to read this story as the devil came to Jesus in his weakness. After 40 days, all alone, no food and water, dried, like hot desert, isn't that just like the enemy? To come at us like at our worst, in our weakness, when we're tired and vulnerable. But this story clicked for me. The Aramos is not a place of weakness. It's a place of strength. It's here that Jesus took on the devil face to face. And you may say, well, yeah, Caleb, but look at all the scripture that he threw at the devil. Yes, I agree. There's a real principle there and that we should meditate on the word, Psalm 1 says. We should bury it in our hearts. It is the source of what's real about the world. It's our story, but that still doesn't explain why he was alone in a desert, fasting, And it's not only because he is playing out the story of Israel. That is a layer of it. He's playing out the story of Israel in the wilderness. But if that was the only reason, then why does Jesus multiple times go back to the Aramos? If it was just to like play out some prophecy and be the true Israelite and all that, then why does he still go back? Because it's in solitude 
that we draw upon God's power to encounter not only ourself and find healing, but to draw upon his power to defeat the enemy and to encounter God himself. That's the three weeks that we're going over. But today I just wanna press in on this concept of the Aramos. It was not a one-time thing for Jesus. It was an ongoing rhythm. Let's turn over to Luke 5. In Luke alone, there are nine stories where Jesus goes to the Aramos. I don't have time to read all of those. You should do that. But I'm just gonna read this one from Luke 5, what Doug just read for us. It says, news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus' world was very different than the city of Charlotte where you go on Friday night to South End and there's just like people everywhere. (laughs) Largely, Jesus' context was small rural villages where he would regularly then go out to outside of populated areas. There were vast tracts of empty, uninhabited land called the Aramos. I don't think we have anything like that there unless you're just like out in the sticks. But Jesus would regularly disappear these places. Listen to a few alternate translations. Jesus himself frequently withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. Jesus often slipped away to be alone so that he could pray. As often as possible, Jesus withdrew to out-of-the-way places for prayer. When you read the Gospels, it is story after story of Jesus all alone, out in nature, just him and God. In fact, when you read the Gospels, you notice in Jesus's life this rhythm of retreat and return. Let's look at Mark 1. So in Mark 1, he gives his account of Jesus in the wilderness. That starts in verse 12. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Right after that scene, if you read Mark 1, It's essentially one long chapter of Jesus's first day on the job. From like early, early in the morning, Jesus gets up after the wilderness scene. He calls his first disciples. Then he goes and drives out impure spirits. He heals a lot of people. And this goes like well on past sunset. This is a full day for Jesus. But then we get to verse 35. And it says, like the next day, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went off to a, there it is, a solitary place, the Aramos. Simon, his companions went to look for him when they found him. So they like went searching for him in the Aramos. They said, everyone's looking for you, Jesus. He said, well, let's go somewhere else to nearby villages. I can preach there also. That's why I've come. So then they travel out through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. You see this. He goes from 40 days in the wilderness, one long day of ministry, and then he goes back to the same exact place, the Aramos. It is not just a one-time thing for Jesus. This was woven into his every day life. Jesus' life was a rhythm of retreat and return. He would 
retreat into solitude. He would get away from people, from noise, from stimulation to pray, to rest, to listen to the Father's voice. But he wasn't a hermit. He would then go back to be with people in community, to love and to serve. So away in the, in the Aramos and then back into community, this retreat and the return. Turn over to Mark 6.30. This is after John the Baptist had been murdered. This is the feeding of the 5,000 scene. And so Jesus and his disciples, like they are just taxed. They have been doing tons of ministry and you can also just like see that like the brokenness in Jesus. This is one of his best friends was murdered. And it says in verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus, reported to them all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. Felt that way before? <laughs> he said to them, come with me so that we can binge watch Ted Lasso together. Come with me so we can just chill at a bar, grab a few drinks, smoke a cigar, Come with me to fill in the blank escapist activity. What does he say? No, come with me by yourselves to Ramos and get some rest. So what you really need is not another TV show, another glass of wine, another night out on the town. No, what you really need is to be alone with Jesus in quiet place. Verse 32, so they went by away by themselves in a boat to the Ramos. But many who saw them leaving, uh, I'm sorry, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and like got there ahead of them. Ever needed some time alone, but just everyone is there? <laughs> the introverts in their room are like, I feel so validated. The extroverts are like, what's so bad about that? A lot, <laughs> a lot is wrong with that. Verse 34, when Jesus landed and he saw the large crowd, I just love the realism of this. He has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. You know, what the disciples really need is time alone with Jesus and the Aramos, but realistically, sometimes it just doesn't happen. You may set aside some time to be alone, to pray, to be with God, and then wham, something comes up. Jesus felt that too, that's reality. But even after being so exhausted, haven't really even eaten. He's like feeding everyone else. Look at verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go on ahead of them to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. You ever read this and you're like, wow, Jesus is just so spiritual. All night prayer warrior. And he is, but again, this is Jesus's default pattern. He, he's like, guys, just get out of here, just go. <laughs> Literally sends his guys away. But in the life of Jesus, again, after an exhausting day, what does he do? He gets alone 
in a quiet place on a mountain with God. Why? Because he knew his soul needed more than just food or sleep. And Jesus loves to sleep. Read the Gospels. But he is more clued in to his emotional and spiritual health than I think any of us ever will be because being alone with God was exactly what he needed. So he went. You see this rhythm. Jesus consistently moving back and forth between solitude and community. One theologian says, arguably, solitude and community are like the two basic containers for all of the spiritual practices. But the problem is, because of the digital age, we don't ever really fully go all the way into solitude or community. Instead, we're often what Sherry Turkle calls alone together. You can be with people, but not actually in community. You can never have relationships that go beneath the surface where you know and are known. You can also be alone in a room, but on your device. I think all of us, we are drawn to solitude and we're drawn to community, but we're also scared of it. Which is why in your mind, you've likely started some objections like, yeah, but Caleb, I'm an extrovert. I need to be around people or I'm a young parent or I live a busy life. Caleb, what about mission? What about revival? But again, Jesus often withdrew Ramos. He was Jesus. Like, I know you're busy, but people were literally clinging to him, digging through a ceiling to like give their friend to him. And yet, despite of the demand, or maybe even because of it, he would regularly slip away. In fact, you can chart Jesus's life. Like, just go through the gospels. You can chart his life. The higher in demand, it seems the more he just like slips away. So interesting. Even so that in Mark 1, people are literally going out and searching for him. But in doing so, Jesus lays down this pattern for his disciples to follow. And so what I wanna do just for the next few minutes here is clarify, first of all, what solitude is not, give you a working definition of what it is, give you just some like personal kind of experience from this. And then some application. Number one, solitude is not loneliness. Richard Foster in the Celebration of Discipline, he writes, loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. Loneliness is like this ache of like, I, I just, I feel But in solitude, there is felt presence. Sociologists tell us that Gen Z is the loneliest generation of all time. But in solitude, it's not loneliness. There's very presence of God there. Number two, it's not isolation. So the Hawaiian pastor Wayne Cordero, he says, there's a difference between isolation and solitude. They're similar characteristics, but in reality, they're worlds apart. Solitude is chosen separation for the refining of your soul. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect the first. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect alone time with yourself and God. 
about that way? It's this movement away from people. And God, I'm like, I'm, I'm ashamed. I, I don't want to be around people. I don't want to be known. But solitude is, is this movement toward God and therefore then movement towards people. And number three, it's not aloneness or just simply like being by yourself. And this is why this is not a practice for introverts. I promise you introverts hate solitude just as much as extroverts. What solitude is, it's, it's not, again, it's not like this spiritualized me time. It's not what introverts love where it's like, all right, we're just in a coffee shop. We're just like away from the world. We're with a book. It's just a little me time. That's not what it is. I promise you, when we do this, extroverts and introverts, like, this is tough for us. So then what is it? Solitude defined from the scriptures, we see very simply, it is intentional time in the quiet with ourselves and with God. Ruth Haley Barton, she writes, solitude at its most basic and profound level is simply an opportunity to be by ourselves with God. There's gonna be a lot of kind of quotes coming at you. If you miss stuff, that's fine. I upload my transcript so you can go back and look at that. But again, it is an opportunity to simply be ourselves with God. That's why it's not the same thing as aloneness. You're not alone. You're alone with God. You're free from inputs. The only inputs is God and your heart before God. Which is why solitude has two companions, silence and stillness. Habakkuk 2.20, I just referenced this. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Silence is two things. It's exterior silence. So like all of the exterior noise. So this could be like the Amazon guy passing by. This could be music in your AirPods. This could be chimes from push notifications on your phone. This could be TV in the background, all of it. That is external noise. But it's also, there's a second dimension. There's interior silence where you attempt, and this is easier said than done, where you attempt to quiet all of these thoughts and worries in your own soul. You're like, Caleb, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how that can happen. But again, as we do this, this leads then to stillness it's a command, be still and know that I am God, Psalm 46. Plisto's wary to find stillness this way. Stillness is a state of inner tranquility or mental quietude and concentration. It's not simply silence, but an attitude of listening to God and of openness to God. So for example, if I took a jar of water, I've got this nasty lake near my house, and I just like filled it up, put like, soil in it, and I shook it over a long time, what would happen? It would start to settle. Stuff would start to go down at the bottom. You would be able eventually to start seeing that the water is clear as it is with your own soul. It takes time. That's a picture of what's happening to you as you go into solitude. We get all churned up. But then over time, if we stay in it long enough, we come to stillness. 
And most of the great ones of the way of Jesus would go down through history. They would all say that solitude is one of the most important practices of Jesus. Henry Nouwen said, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and to listen to him. I mean, think about it. The more intimate a relationship, the more it retires, or requires alone time together. For those of you married in this room, just imagine if you were never alone with your spouse. If you were always with other people, always on the go, always in a loud, noisy environment, you would never be intimate. It is the same with your soul and with God. Now, from personal experience, this is what I find when I go into solitude. Number one, I decompress from like the overstimulation of the modern world. My body, my central nervous system begins to calm down. I slow down from all of the hurry, all the traffic, all the pathological busyness, and then I begin to feel. There's this concept known as feelings. When you get alone and just steal, still you start to like feel. And it's in that, then I'm forced to confront the good, the bad, and the ugly in my own heart. All my anxieties that I've just like forced down begin to start to bubble up. Anxieties like money. Anxieties like, am I a good enough pastor or preacher? I replay all of just the crushing like expectations all the things that I'm not doing or meeting, all this inner critique I start to feel, all this self-deprecation. I feel my addiction to my phone come out. Am I getting any texts? Wondering what other crisis is going on in the world? Is there a new film study on Georgia football I could watch? It all comes up, but it's all exposed in a safe space in God's loving presence, and it's in solitude, I start to actually hear the voice of God and the litany of all other voices that I hear in my life. I get God's perspective on my life. And often I come to a place of freedom, success and failure, they don't have a hold over me. Nor does the approval or disapproval of other people. It was in solitude that I realized I am not the savior of this church. And truthfully, I'm not that important. Not in a self-deprecating way, but just in a freeing way. It was in solitude I realized that for so long, I had to be something for someone else. Be it from unresolved trauma from my peers, or just like, early 20s, like brand new Christian, just thrown right into ministry. It was in solitude that I heard and was reminded from God, you, because of Jesus, you are my son. 
Caleb, you had to be something for everyone, but you don't even know what it means to be yourself, who I see you as. It's in solitude we are naked and exposed, but it's also in solitude where we learn to be naked and unashamed. But when we neglect solitude, we feel distant from God. We start living off of someone else's spirituality, like a podcast or a sermon. We feel distant from ourselves. We lose sight of our identity and calling, who I am, what I was meant to do. I get more and more reactive. So I get sucked in just the tyranny of the urgent, not the important. I lose God's perspective on my life. And above all, I get so tired. I run out of energy and I shift from engaging towards people to engaging with escapism. Entertainment, social media, doom scrolling. You know what I'm talking about. Shopping. Sorry, I've done it too. I've done it too. It's not just you. Sugar, alcohol, just whatever it is. I become emotionally unhealthy, on edge. The smallest thing can make me impatient. I become a toxic person and a toxic leader. Guys, to clarify, the Aramos is not just a place, it's a practice. You don't have to go out into the desert of Judea or like the New Mexican uh, wilderness or the Australian outback, even though that'd be pretty sweet. But you can find what the early Christians would say, finding the desert of the monks in the busy city. So maybe that's your backyard. That's what it is for me. Maybe it's getting up before your family or roommates. We must learn to find the Aramos. Most of us can't go live in a desert. We've got to drop off our kindergartner at 8 a.m. and be at work by 8.30. But how do we make space for God? How in the same way as Jesus, we retreat, we slip away, and then come back into community. Guys, we need this more than ever. I saw this statistic about noise pollution. So noise pollution can cause hypertension, heart disease, stroke, learning difficulties, emotional difficulties, cognitive impairment, anxiety, depression. One study found that prescriptions for anxiety medication rose 28% for every 10 decibel increase in neighborhood noise. Isn't that crazy? Another study in Europe found that we literally are losing years off of our life because of chronic noise. Y'all, this is life or death importance here. But let's be honest. Many of us want to avoid solitude and silence at all costs. And I think a big reason why is because we avoid it is because of fear. We fear that if we are genuinely still and quiet before God, what will we find there? Will there be anything there? Have we lived off of someone else's spirituality so long that we're afraid that there just won't be that much substance when it's needed? Maybe we're afraid to go there because if we're honest, we don't really like ourselves that We know it's going to be chaos, all of the thoughts, all of the feelings, and we just, we don't want to mess with it. 
But David says, search me and try me and test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is anything offensive in me and lead me into the way everlasting. Guys, there is healing done in solitude. It is there that you see that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us, and now what's true of Jesus is true of you. You are beloved. Healing happens there. Can I, can I just offer something for you to consider? In the greatest commandment, Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, heart, strength, and then he says love your neighbor as what? As yourself. This isn't like as our culture defines it, like a self-elevation. But guys, it's also not just like hating yourself. Guys, how can we expect to love others, practice empathy towards others, if we don't even like ourselves? If we can't practice empathy with ourselves? Maybe the reason why we struggle with empathy and we would rather just loft up spiritual platitudes or solutions towards people is because we don't know how to be empathetic towards ourselves. Dallas Willard, he said, said, solitude and silence are the most radical of the disciplines because they most directly attack the sources of human misery and wrongdoing. Silence is required to complete solitude for until we enter quietness, the world still lays hold of us about that. Solitude as the most radical, but it is often the most neglected. But Jesus went into it regularly. Do we really think that we can live without what Jesus found essential? His invitation is come and follow me. Come and follow my way of life. If you're thinking solitude is for me, yes. It's for all people of all places for all time. And the way you practice it has to be customized for your personality, stage of life, living situation. But if Jesus needed this, how much more do we? With that said, he doesn't command you. Very rarely are the spiritual disciplines commanded. Very few of them. He just does all these things and he says, come follow me. You're not commanded, you're invited. I'll end with this. Ruth Haley Barton, she says, the invitation to solitude and silence is just that. It's an invitation to enter more deeply into the intimacy of relationship with the one who waits just outside the gates and the busyness. It's an invitation to communication and communion with the one who has always been present even when our awareness has been dulled by distraction. It's an invitation to the adventure of spiritual transformation in the deepest places of our being, an adventure that will result in greater freedom and authenticity and surrender to God than we have yet experienced. I love this imagery of God just waiting outside the noise and the busyness waiting to speak to you through his word and prayer, ready to comfort you, to breathe courage into your heart, 
love you. As one early Christian put it, the friend of silence comes close to God. You want to be close to God. Then follow Jesus into a quiet place. So during the month of November, we're going to be talking about solitude here and in our life groups. We're going to be putting it into practice. The exercise for this week is very simple. Just begin your day with a few minutes of solitude. For some of you, you may find this easier the night before bed or at night before bed, mid-morning, maybe when your toddler is napping, on your lunch break. I mean, that's, that's great. But for the vast majority of people, we recommend this first thing in the morning. When your body is rested, your heart is open, and the day is new. So let's stand. done a lot just to, from the scriptures, from how other early Christians and other Christians have talked about it, just to kind of engage your mind and hopefully even see the value of this. But I just want to give you a little bit of space. Just invite the Holy Spirit, even now, in the stillness, just to process before we move forward. Father, help what stirring just in our minds to make this journey to our hearts. As we follow you, as we are invited by your son, he said, I am the truth and I am the way. Come, follow me, you will recover your life. These are not just good suggestions or things that Jesus thought was a good idea. No, he said this is how we recover our humanity is by intentionally, quietly just spending time with you, allowing ourselves to feel, reminding ourselves, you reminding us of just how deeply loved we are. That just all throughout the Psalms, it is just clear 
that we not only are allowed, but invited to bring that which is toxic and broken in us to you, and you're not You're welcome. Because if we cannot unleash that to you, then we will unleash it on others. And so solitude is a place of healing, freedom. But God, and the objections that we're already throwing are just, ah, this isn't for me, I'm an extrovert. God, would you just break through and invite us into this life kingdom? It's a quiet place with you.